This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. I'm Tom Nyland. I'm at UCSF in the VA. I'm a sleep and PTSD researcher. And um, it's a real privilege to introduce Dr. Von Carter, who... Is professor of medicine at uh, the University of Chicago. Um, Dr. Von Cotter has many grants, publications, and awards, but she has accomplished something that most people in academia only dream of, and that is real high-impact discovery. I mean, she has uh, really shown through elegant experimental designs the impact of sleep loss on on metabolism, uh, hyperglycemia, insulin resistance, and she's really helped create a field. Um, Much of this symposium today is is actually Ev's field, so it's a real privilege to introduce Dr. Von Cotter. Thank you for the kind words, a bit exaggerated of course, but I'll take it as they are. And I'm delighted to uh, be speaking to you uh, today. Um, and um, will give my perspective, which is that of uh, the laboratory. Uh, most of our work, we've taken young, healthy, lean adults who were good sleepers and perfectly fine at baseline, and we manipulated their sleep, either the duration or, or the quality, and we observed uh, the consequences. So I'm not discussing associations in most of this work. We're discussing uh, consequences of a well-controlled intervention. So, so just to remind you uh, of the scope of uh, the problem that uh, we discussed today, uh, these are the maps from the CDC. Uh, they are wonderfully uh, illustrative. Uh, the obesity epidemic is on top. The diabetes epidemic is at the bottom. They go hand in hand. So from 1990 to 2000, you see that uh, the blue had to, uh, the dark blue spread and a red color had to be introduced. And these are now the more recent years. 2004, the darker color represents the higher prevalence. 2005, and you see how it's spreading 2006 and 2007. And so there's a lot of work going on to try to understand how these enormous changes occurred over such a short period of time. Uh, Genetic factors obviously cannot alone explain these epidemics. And the two major explanations that have been given are uh, the changes in food marketing practices where ever larger amounts of food are available uh, uh, at low cost uh, and and without uh, much uh, effort and reductions in physical activity. But most experts believe that these are not sufficient 
and amongst uh, the uh, alternative, non-traditional uh, uh, explanations that are uh, being investigated is the possibility that uh, we have reduced sleep duration and quality. I, I do believe that the problems that the previous speaker uh, brought to our attention uh, is something very well uh, worth uh, exploring because it is also a major change over a short period of time. So my, the overview of my talk, since I believe in the importance of sleep, if you need to take a nap, you can time yourself. I will discuss first insufficient sleep and the risk of obesity, then the risk of diabetes, then the impact of poor sleep quality, and obstructive sleep apnea, another epidemic uh, on the risk of diabetes. And lastly, just very, very briefly, uh, show you some data that suggests that uh, the presence of a sleep disorder can have a major impact on the severity of another uh, medical condition. So this is a slide from, from when I uh, started uh, working in the sleep field. So it's an old slide. Uh, you know, it was a glass slide that the uh, uh, Sleep Research uh, Society uh, distributed, and it was your first slide for teaching, behavioral definition of sleep, uh, you know, re reduced physical activity, stereotypic posture, etc. And then you had those slides showing the stereotypic posture for various species, including the lovely woman. But now we have another uh, stereotypic <laughs> posture in that you see uh, young, healthy people just, just deadly uh, asleep anywhere. Uh, you know, it's very common to board a plane at 11 a.m., and that half of the cabin is asleep even before takeoff. So um, it seems that we have developed a, no a novel behavior of uh, sleeping less. Unfortunately, a lot of uh, what we know about uh, sleep duration in the general population is based on self-report, which is not uh, very accurate often. And secondly, we know that there are lots of short sleepers. We don't necessarily know why they are short sleepers. Are people, do people have more insomnia, more difficulty achieving sleep, or is it really the competition with all the activities that are available now thanks to all the technology, the electricity, the 24-hour life? Uh, it probably plays a, a major role. So uh, here is a, uh, an interesting uh, uh, slide that comes from a, a review. I should have the, uh, the um, reference on there, but I thought it was interesting, and it connects to the talk of the last speaker of the day, which is that if you look at um, the uh, prevalence of short sleepers in the general population, and you look across different uh, race ethnic groups, and this is showing the changes from 95 to 99. 95 is in uh, blue, and then 99 is in red. What you can see is that in African Americans and in Hispanics, the number of short sleepers has increased uh, more than in, in whites. And these are populations that are already at a higher risk for a variety of uh, disease, and in particularly cardiometabolic disease, diabetes, hypertension, that are majorly impact, as I will show, uh, by sleep. So there is the possibility that uh, 
health disparities in some of the most common chronic conditions in this country and elsewhere uh, could be related to differences in uh, sleep duration and perhaps uh, the socioeconomic burden uh, on uh, the ability to achieve sufficient sleep. So um, starting with my first topic, which is really the impact of sleep loss on the risk of obesity, I want to review laboratory studies And uh, initially, the first studies were mostly focused on energy intake, but in the past few years, there's been a number of studies that have looked at energy expenditure, the other side of the balance. And so uh, I want to um, uh, pay tribute to uh, my senior collaborator, Dr. Spiegel, who is now a senior scientist in uh, the equivalent of the French NIH, She conducted this sleep debt study that indeed has had a very high impact uh, uh, and sort of helped, helped create that field of inquiry. She directed a study where uh, the volunteers uh, were 16 nights in a row in the laboratory. As I mentioned, they were healthy young uh, men, lean, fit, uh, absolutely free of any disease. The first Three nights were the recommended eight hours in bed, and then we reduced their sleep duration to only four hours in bed for six nights. And then, really, we didn't know at the time when we designed this experiment how long it would take to pay the sleep debt accumulated over these six nights. So we decided to give them back the four hours for six nights and evaluate them at the end of that sleep recovery. So she conducted, um, she did blood sampling uh, at the beginning and at the end, and she also evaluated uh, glucose tolerance with an intravenous glucose tolerance test. And here are the findings on the hormone leptin. As you know, leptin uh, was born uh, about a few years before uh, this study was conducted. Leptin uh, revolutionized our view of fat because fat, rather than being an inert depot, was then recognized as an endocrine uh, organ releasing this hormone. And the hormone leptin um, is released by the adipocyte and uh, communicates to the brain, brain centers that control hunger and appetite the energy balance of the rest of the body. When leptin levels are high, it is communicated a message of satiety, no more calories are needed. When leptin levels are low, it is communicating a message of caloric need and is a powerful stimulator of hunger. So um, the 24-hour profiles of leptin in the volunteers with four hours in bed indicated that leptin levels were lower And that suggested a state of increased hunger and appetite, a state of caloric uh, deprivation. Um, we had asked the volunteers whether they were hungry or not. Uh, you know, usually they complain about the food in the hospital in any case, uh, and rightly so. Uh, so we, 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 don't, we don't know whether they were, in, in fact, more hungry. But the real problem with this, which is a huge difference in leptin and translates into an impression of having been underfed by about a thousand calories for three days, so it's a very big impact. The problem of this is that they were receiving the exact same food 
under both conditions. So the leptin levels were screaming famine in the midst of plenty. And so that suggested that uh, sleep deprivation in this controlled experiment might represent a risk factor for overeating and eventually weight gain. And we, of course, were eager to uh, further examine that and to follow up with a second study where not only we measured leptin as the product of uh, fat cells, but we also measured ghrelin, which is the opposite of leptin, is that the higher the ghrelin, the more hunger. And ghrelin is released by stomach cells primarily and also acts on the same hypothalamic centers that control appetite. And sometimes leptin and ghrelin are described as the yin and yang of appetite regulation. So in this study, which was uh, partly designed in, in response to the criticism of the previous study, a shorter period of sleep deprivation, uh, a randomized crossover design, no order effect, and then importantly, uh, we uh, uh, administered questionnaires about hunger and appetite every hour so that we would know what the volunteers were saying, were feeling. And here are the findings in that um, the uh, leptin levels, when uh, the subjects were sleep-restricted, so in these slides, sleep restriction danger is always in, in red, uh, the leptin levels were decreased, that confirmed what we had seen previously, but surprisingly, the ghrelin levels were increased. So the hunger factor was higher, the satiety factor was lower, and uh, consistent with that, hunger and appetite were uh, higher uh, at all times of day when we measured them with this questionnaire. And I can tell you that uh, the foods that the volunteers were craving mostly were carbohydrate-rich foods, uh, including the uh, sweets, the salty snacks, which included pretzels, etc., and the starchy foods. And so this is, um, we're still, of course, interested in this issue, and we're now looking at this issue with a, yet a different uh, protocol, uh, which is led by Dr. Tesali, who is uh, one of my main and most senior uh, collaborator. And her protocol uh, compares in a randomized crossover design, again of young, healthy adults, for five days in the laboratory, either with eight and a half hours in bed or four and a half hours in bed. During the first four days of each condition, the volunteers received the exact same food, exact same caloric intake. But the last day, just before they get their, their last night here, they get uh, an ad-lib buffet. So they are all of a sudden faced with the best the kitchen of the clinical research center can produce, which is uh, represented here. So they've had an interview before even starting the study with the dietitian so that we, we are not putting out broccoli out there for a person who hates broccoli. Everything that is out there is food that they uh, are, would, would normally be willing to eat. We let them eat by themselves, um, you know, in privacy. Uh, they have an hour to eat the lunch buffet, and then there is an additional uh, tray of snacks that is there. They have a four-hour time with ad-lib food. And, of course, we measure absolutely everything that they eat. And so here are the findings. Um, 
The difference in caloric intake in the first uh, 11 subjects in this uh, study was plus 430 calories when they were sleep deprived as opposed to fully rested. And uh, it was mostly under the form of uh, increased intake of carbohydrate-rich foods. So we are here partly uh, as the legacy of Dr. Atkins. Well, it looks as if you're sleep-deprived, you have trouble following any diet, but probably the Atkins diet even worse. Now, this kind of work, um, you know, has been going on in other laboratories, and I'd like to show here a study that was uh, conducted uh, at, um, I think it's, it's in New York, it's, I think led by uh, Marie-Pierre Saint-Onge, and it's a very similar uh, randomized crossover design of healthy young volunteers, either short sleep or normal sleep, uh, uh, they also use the uh, Adlib buffet, which is a standard protocol in obesity research uh, to measure, you know, the uh, anorexic impact of different drugs, this Adlib buffet. So they use that buffet as well, and they uh, recorded an increase of 300 calories, so very similar to what we had recorded. Importantly, this study also measured energy expenditure using the doubly labeled water method, which is kind of the gold standard for um, um, uh, measuring energy expenditure under normal living conditions, and they found no significant differences. And that was so suggesting there's an increased caloric intake, but there's not an increased energy expenditure and therefore risk of weight gain. And that was consistent with a, a study from the University of Chicago led by Dr. Panev, where he used also a randomized crossover design comparing two weeks in the clinical resource centers, either with eight and a half hours in bed or five and a half hours in bed. And he was diabolical because what he did is to um, serve the food in so-called family-style ways such that uh, the, there's no uh, pre-measured servings. It's you, you can help yourself as much as you want. And second, uh, he installed mini bars without alcohol, of course, in the uh, bedrooms of the volunteers where they could help themselves to as much as they wanted. And again, everything was measured. So um, the hypothesis of the study was that the subject would eat more under uh, sleep restriction than under sleep extension. And that was actually the case, but it was primarily more from uh, energy intake from snacks, and it was about 300 calories as well. Uh, and here in this study, um, Dr. Panev and co-workers also measured energy expenditure by the W-labeled water method, and it, even though that method is very precise, they were unable to show a difference in energy expenditure between the two conditions. So this issue of you know, energy expenditure has been more in the limelight lately because obviously people are saying, well, if you are keeping yourself awake a longer, a longer time, either, even under a sedentary condition, it has to use some energy. And so there's a study that was done in a calorimetry room uh, comparing a full night of sleep deprivation versus a full night of sleep in the same bed, recumbent, etc., and showing uh, this is a study by um, um, 
Kenneth Wright at the University of Colorado, and uh, what they are showing is that uh, the energy cost of a night of sleep loss, a night, a, a night without any sleep, is a averages 143 calories, which is less than the stimulation of energy uh, intake. And the other question is whether the tired subject is more likely to exercise or to reduce the physical activity. We tried to do this in the laboratory and we weren't successful, but recently uh, the team of Dr. Panev was able to show, first in a cross-sectional study, that uh, amongst a group of 48 uh, individuals who were recruited because they were at familiar risk for type 2 diabetes, and then their sleep was measured by actigraphy and their energy expenditure was measured by accelerometry, that in fact those who were short sleepers, where short sleep was considered as less than six hours per night, not by self-report, by measurement, uh, they uh, had 27% fewer daily activity counts, less time in uh, physical activity, and they remained more sedentary, and all of this was in the laboratory. And then in a subsequent study that was just published last year, which is an intervention study, where again in uh, healthy adults but at risk for type 2 diabetes, they compared sleep restriction to sleep extension in a randomized crossover design and showed that in fact uh, sleep restriction was associated uh, with reduced levels of activity. So even though the maintenance of wakefulness uh, has an energy cost, the stimulation of appetite is greater than the energy cost, and then during the daytime, there's a tendency for the sleep-deprived individual to expand less energy. So that is kind of a, uh, Professor Ayon has left, so I'm just going to put that out there. I think he wouldn't like this slide, but it's just illustrating the epidemic of obesity and the uh, reduction in sleep duration. Uh, and, and I just reviewed with you the laboratory evidence that kind of supports that link in a causal relationship where those were all intervention studies. There's a large body of evidence, of epidemiologic evidence, and I think we'll hear more about it today, but that is not uh, what I want to continue to discuss now. So now I want to discuss the risk of type 2 diabetes and uh, just remind you that in this first study, Dr. Spiegel performed this intravenous glucose tolerance test. And um, just to remind you how type 2 diabetes evolves, not in everybody, but in the majority of the subjects, the tissues that need insulin to utilize glucose become less sensitive to insulin, also called insulin resistant. So in order to achieve the same glucose metabolism, the beta cells of the pancreas have to release more insulin. If at some point the beta cells fail to release enough insulin to control glucose levels, that's the beginning of diabetes called prediabetes, and then it evolves to diabetes. And so, in fact, uh, insulin sensitivity and the beta cell response have to be uh, compensating for each other, 
and remain, and the product of the two, which is uh, uh, the disposition index, has to remain constant. So if for some reason you become less insulin sensitive, like a woman becomes pregnant, or you're taking a drug, or you put on some weight, as long as your beta cells are able to upregulate the production of insulin, your diabetes risk will not change. But if, in fact, your beta cells uh, cannot accommodate that extra load, then this hyperbola will move to the um, origin and your diabetes risk will be increased. And so in this first study uh, of Dr. Spiegel, she noticed a decrease of insulin sensitivity with sleep loss, five days of four hours in bed. However, the beta cells, instead of compensating and releasing more, they actually release significantly less. And therefore, the disposition index, this marker of diabetes risk inversely related to diabetes risk. So the lower the disposition index, the higher the diabetes risk was significantly changed. A few years after that, the PANEV team did another study where those were overweight uh, middle-aged individuals, 14 nights of five and a, and a half hours in bed as compared to a fully rested condition, decrease in insulin sensitivity, beta cells failing again to compensate, and therefore decrease in disposition index. Two years ago, Dr. Buxton out of Harvard published this other study, six nights of five-hour bedtimes in healthy young individuals, decrease of insulin sensitivity, no compensation by the beta cell, and therefore decrease in diabetes risk. And I could put a few more of these studies uh, on the slide, but just to show you that there is good consistency in these laboratory studies that all took people who were totally with normal glucose tolerance at baseline and who became pre-diabetic after the sleep manipulation. Now, this is to share with you, uh, we were interested to, to figure out this insulin sensitivity, this decline in insulin sensitivity, can we measure it at the molecular level? And so um, one tissue that can be easily sampled uh, in uh, healthy humans is adipose tissue. It's not difficult to take a biopsy of fat uh, around the uh, umbil umbilicum. And we asked our volunteer whether they would accept this procedure and have it both with um, normal sleep and then a month later with restricted sleep. And this was really a collaboration with, uh, led by the adipocyte biologist Matt Brady. And what we measured, and the, the, the fat cells are isolated, and uh, what we measure in the fat cells is one of the first step of insulin signaling. So insulin, uh, this, is, this is the cell membrane. This is the, the inside of the adipocyte. Insulin binds to its receptor. Uh, it forms these insulin receptor substrates. And the next step is the phosphorylation of AKT, which is a crucial step in bringing glucose transporters near the membrane and uh, helping bring uh, glucose inside the cell. So what we measure here is the phosphorylation of AKT. And uh, these are immunoblots uh, 
This is the insulin, the, every, the adipocytes are exposed to increasing insulin concentration, total AKT is the control, and you see, for example, on top here that the first uh, blot uh, that is clearly apparent is at a concentration of 0.5 nanomolar of insulin. And then I'm not going to belabor that, but you can see that it takes a larger amount of insulin to phosphorylate the same amount of AKT when the subject is sleep-deprived, and this has, was observed in each and every subject. There were actually seven subjects in this experiment, which is uh, coming out uh, next uh, in two weeks from now, and where you see that uh, the dose-response curve of insulin of, of uh, phosphorylation of AKT to insulin concentration is clearly shifted to the right. So the adipocyte has become insulin resistance, and the change is enormous because the insulin concentration for half maximum response is basically double. You need twice as much insulin to uh, phosphorylate the same amount of AKT. So that is one thing. It really demonstrates a, 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 an important impact of sleep deprivation on the adipocyte. My interest in this uh, really is sleep is not only for the brain, it's also for the body. It's, it's for peripheral cells of the body. Fat needs sleep in order to function normally if fat needs sleep, why doesn't muscle need sleep, why doesn't, etc. Et so it it's, it's kind of opens up the possibility that each peripheral cell in the body and not only our brain cells are really need sleep to function normally. So that is uh, uh, that story. Uh, I want to show just a, a tiny bit of epidemiology because uh, Dr. Capuccio performed this meta-analysis of uh, prospective uh, studies uh, relating sleep duration and the incidence of type 2 diabetes. So these were studies where sleep duration was assessed at baseline, usually by self-report, and then the incidence of diabetes, the number of diabetes cases was uh, counted in the follow-up period. And um, he calculated a relative risk of 28%. So you're 28% more likely to develop type 2 diabetes if you're a short sleeper. Uh, this 28% was actually 100% in men and not uh, significant uh, in women. Uh, and, and then I have my own method. Uh, I kind of keep track of all the new studies that come out, looking only at longitudinal studies, which, because they give some idea as to the direction of causality. And then I plot the relative risk on this scale. I put a black dot when it's not significant, statistically significant, and uh, here's the number of subjects, and you see that uh, the majority of, of studies have found, indeed, an increased risk of developing diabetes uh, in short sleepers. So it brings me now to the uh, impact of poor sleep quality, independently of sleep duration. It gives me pleasure, again, to uh, showcase the work of my collaborator, Dr. Tessali. Um, she had the thought that uh, poor sleep quality is typical of aging and increased diabetes risk is typical of aging and could the two be related? And so she had the idea of giving 
the, the poor sleep quality of a 70-year-old to uh, young, healthy people uh, in their 20s. And so she did that by installing on each side of the bed um, amplifiers, and then she was in the control room, and each time the volunteer would enter deep sleep, also called slow-wave sleep, she would send a sound of pitch and intensity calibrated such that the volunteer would not uh, wake up but would immediately revert to shallow sleep. And she did that for three nights in a row. She's normally a very nice person. <laughs> uh, and, and so and she was, this is a very difficult experiment. She was very successful in that she was able to reduce slow-wave sleep from 80 minutes, which is the nor- a normal amount in young, healthy subjects, to less than 10 minutes, three nights in a row, without changing total sleep time, so the subject did not fully arouse, and without changing REM sleep time. And then what she observed is a decrease of insulin sensitivity, you remember that already, no change in beta cell function, no increased release of insulin, no compensation, and therefore a decrease in disposition index indicating an increase in diabetes risk and indeed glucose tolerance was decreased. And um, if we look at epidemiology again, people who uh, complain about difficulty maintaining sleep, and this is self-report again, this is questionnaires, are indeed also more likely to uh, develop uh, diabetes, and this is my little way to summarize uh, the literature in strictly prospective studies where individuals at baseline were asked about their sleep quality and then the number of cases of incident diabetes was uh, estimated. So uh, this brings me to the next topic, which is, of course, the epidemic of so-called diabetes. The combination of obesity and diabetes is associated with another epidemic, uh, the epidemic of obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, Obstructive sleep apnea is a sleep disorder characterized by recurrent episodes of complete or partial upper airway obstruction. The prevalence used to be... uh, Uh, reported as 24% in men and 9% in women. This was a landmark paper by Terry Young, uh, and I think it was in 93. But today, because of the epidemic of obesity, the uh, prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea has increased enormously, and particularly in women who used to really be very protected, but now we have up to 50% of obese women who have obstructive sleep apnea. It's a complex sleep disorder in that it has all the, all the bad ingredients. So it's generally associated with reduced total sleep time, and we have talked about that already. It's associated with sleep fragmentation. I will discuss that in a minute. Low slow-wave activity. This was Dr. Tesali's experiment with the diabolical uh, sounds coming into the room. And then it has intermittent hypoxia which in itself uh, is also deleterious to glucose tolerance. And in this slide, I'm just summarizing the findings of uh, three uh, different uh, laboratory studies, two from Johns Hopkins and Dr. Tesali's study, where different components of obstructive sleep apnea 
were mimicked in the laboratory in healthy young subjects. So um, in this study, uh, Punjabi and Stamatakis uh, induced all-stage sleep fragmentation, not specific to slow-wave sleep, and also showed a reduction of incident sensitivity. And then uh, Punjabi and others um, did a study in awake subjects, but five hours of intermittent hypoxia as compared to uh, normal uh, nomoroxia and, and showing again uh, a decrease of insulin sensitivity. I want to just give you a little, um, you know, these, these changes are typical 25% decrease in insulin sensitivity. So for a normal, healthy, lean person, a 25% decrease, decrease of insulin sensitivity will occur with about a 10 kilo weight gain. So it's not a small change, it's a big change. Um, the same team at Hopkins uh, examined then in patients, non-diabetic patients, using this intravenous glucose tolerance test, the impact of uh, obstructive sleep apnea uh, on insulin sensitivity. So this is a cross-sectional laboratory studies, large number of people for this kind of uh, assessment, and people were uh, stratified according to the apnea-hypopnea index, which uh, quantifies the uh, severity of obstructive sleep apnea this is considered, if you have less than five events per hour, you're considered not to have sleep apnea. Five to 15 mild, 15 to 30 uh, moderate, and over 30 severe. And you can see the graded relationship between the severity of obstructive sleep apnea and insulin sensitivity. Uh, prospective studies of in individuals with obstructive sleep apnea are suggestive of an increased risk of developing diabetes. And lastly, I want to uh, say two words about what happens if you are already diabetic and you have obstructive sleep apnea. So the first thing is that uh, it, from data published over the last few years, um, it has emerged that uh, type 2 diabetes is associated with an exceptionally high prevalence of uh, sleep apnea. From these five studies, the weighted average is 68% meaning that two out of three patients with type 2 diabetes who go see their doctor actually have this comorbidity, and most of the time, neither them or their doctor knows about it. Um, so this is, the, this is a slide that kind of has tried to summarize the uh, prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea in different disease states, and you see that it, it, it seems that type 2 diabetes may be associated with the highest degree of uh, OSA. And then what's important here is this uh, analysis where uh, glucose control, which is really, you know, how well the diabetes is, is, is uh, controlled in patients who have type 2 diabetes and take one, two, three drugs, uh, what is the impact of having OSA? So as compared to not having OSA, having even mild OSA is associated with an increase in hemoglobin A1C of 1%. I can tell you to get a decrease of 1% in, in your hemoglobin A1C if you are diabetic, you have to take at least one drug. 
and having severe OSA as compared to no OSA is associated with a uh, increase in hemoglobin A1C by 2%, which is really two, the equivalent of two to three drugs. Now, this is a cross-sectional analysis. It doesn't have, uh, doesn't tell us about the direction of causality. And clearly, major questions are whether effective treatment of OSA can improve glycemic control in patients with type 2 diabetes. The, uh, the data so far, uh, even though quite a number of groups are working on this, remains somewhat inconclusive, not terribly encouraging. One issue, of course, is compliance, which is generally low. And uh, a second question would be, uh, does effective treatment of OSA, if we had a treatment to which subject would be really compliant, would it de delay the development of type 2 diabetes or reduce the severity? And with these thoughts, I will uh, thank uh, the numerous people who are uh, working uh, uh, in, in this area with me I'm indebted to their efforts um, and also of course uh, the funding agencies uh, um, whom we are uh, battering non-stop and so I'd like to thank you for your attention It's a good and an important question. Uh, we have very few women in our studies, um, except in the Dr. Tesali's study of uh, reduced sleep quality that was about half women, and we did not see a sex difference. In the studies of sleep restriction, most of our studies have uh, enrolled a majority of men, and the reason for that is that as you know, glucose tolerance is influenced by the phase of the menstrual cycle. So when you enroll women in these randomized crossover design, they have to be in the follicular phase at both, in both conditions, which means they have to have regular cycles, which means they have, you know, and so on. And so it, it becomes very difficult. I always think we should pay women three times as, many, as much as men, but our RIRB doesn't think so. So the, the order effect of the first study was, of course, a criticism that came up that we had built a sleep debt and then the, the subject recovered the sleep. So it was not really comparing normal sleep to sleep restriction, which is why we did the second study, which is, was a randomized crossover design of short sleep versus long sleep. Um, the, the leptin findings... Um, are, have not been reproduced even by ourselves under all conditions. As soon as there is a change in body mass, a uh, change in percentage of fat, uh, leptin levels are very reactive to that, and uh, it's difficult then to, to show an impact of, of sleep duration. There have been epidemiologic studies who have found uh, reduced leptin levels in those with short sleep after controlling for a number of confounders. Dennis, UCSF. Um, a lot of people who have insomnia are treated with medication. Has anybody done any studies to look at the, because they're having problems with sleeping and include this obese patients, whether or not these medications, various sleep medications, have these hormonal effects, interfere with the correct sleep and effect? insulin resistance? 
I mean, that's an, a very important and interesting question, um, and it has not been addressed. Um, I, I think I can share the one experience that there was a novel uh, sedative hypnotic under development that the pharmaceutical company had noticed that there was a small decrease in BMI in those randomized to the active drug as compared to the placebo. And so they called me in to develop a protocol to examine that, and then uh, the upper management decided not to continue the development, and uh, <laughs> my project was in the uh, trash can. Stress, uh, thank you, Elisa, for the comments and for the question. The issue of stress comes up, uh, the, the, this question comes up a lot in, in, in uh, discussion periods like this one. And um, in a number of studies, we've measured the 24 hour profile of cortisol, and with sleep restriction, uh, we observed an increase in even in cortisol levels that is likely to have played an role in the increased insulin resistance of the subject. However, um, when we asked the subject to score their stress on a scale day to day after in the laboratory, they do not score themselves as being more stressed. They score themselves as being tired, as having a lower mood, and, and things like that, but the in the PANAS, the adjectives that specifically address stress, um, they are not, they don't have increased scores. And I really think that our studies are flawed in this respect because the volunteers come into the lab and they just have to follow these instructions. They receive their meals. They play in front of the television. As soon as we see they're a little bit tired, a research assistant comes in with some more games, new games, new films, new video. They don't have a thing to deal with. The real life of a person who is sleep deprived and has to get things done is completely different. And I have this dream of developing a lab protocol where there would be tasks to do and, you know, uh, some sort of punishment if they don't get done, some sort of, you know, <laughs> it'd be difficult. But certainly I think that the, we have ideal condition. The lab is nice. The rooms are like a, a nice holiday inn. The, the, the food is not great, but it's, it's quite okay. The people are very nice, very supportive. They applaud you all the time. Oh, you stayed away. You did great. You did great. That's not real life. <laughs> so I think that the impact of sleep deprivation, chronic partial sleep deprivation in real life is greater than what we are measuring here in the lab. So that's one part. Regarding insomnia, I think that the... The, the, I'm fascinated with the work from Alex, Alex Gonsas, where he uh, examined the 
cortisol profile of people with insomnia which, who, based on polysomnography, had insomnia complaints but normal sleep time in the lab or insomnia complaints and short sleep time in the lab. And he showed that those with short sleep time in the lab really had elevated evening cortisol levels and those with normal sleep time in the lab had normal uh, cortisol levels. And I think this is really interesting because sleep duration, I think, is more important for the corticotropic axis than sleep quality. So when we restrict sleep um, during the hours that the subject would normally be sleeping, we dim the lights, but not to extremes, because if we go to extremes, it'll be very hard for them to stay awake. But so there is a, a gradation in the light intensity in the room where during the normal nocturnal period we reduce uh, light intensity. But your question, I think, is, is an important one because there is new data uh, em that have emerged from uh, genome-wise association studies indicating that the, the nocturnal elevation of melatonin could play a role in um, the risk of diabetes, beta cell function particularly. And so if even a small amount of light can inhibit melatonin release and could have contributed to our observation of reduced glucose tolerance. So it's a good question. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.